Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Here we go. My name is Robert. I'm a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And uh, as as my good friend uh, Chaz says, I haven't found it necessary to drink, use, uh, take any mind-altering chemicals, or burn my life to the ground since April 25th of 1986. And you know, I would like to think that I had something to do with that. Um, but I owe everything, and I mean everything to a loving God as he expressed himself in our group conscious. Fantastic sponsorship over the years. A wonderful mentorship. The Meeting Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and of course the first 164 pages, which is the plan of recovery. Um, I believe in recovery wholeheartedly. Um, I believe that we do recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And so many of us don't even understand what we're going through as a child. Um, one of the most consistent things that I found about uh, alcoholism and those of us who are in this room is drinking was a relief for us. I drank the first time when I was 14 years old because I could get away with it. Uh, every time I drank afterward, it was because I wanted to recapture that feeling of being what I call an almost. When you, and this is my interpretation, when you are a nothing, and you've come from nothing, and you're convinced you're always going to be a nothing, being an almost is everything. You know you're never going to achieve greatness like you see other people do. You just want the madness to stop. You just want the constant reminder that you are nothing just to be diminished long enough so you don't have to blow your brains out. And that was the beginning uh, of my journey. Uh, today, uh, I've been married 34 years. I have an incredible life. And once again, I owe everything to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My dear friend Chaz and, and Tess are examples, as many are, of how we can take a life. And if you know anything about Chaz and his story, you'll, you'll understand the power and the dynamic that can only come, in my understanding, from complete adherence to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. He has gone from having his record expunged, being a high school dropout, getting a GED, and now he's got the job of his dreams as a firefighter. I mean, that does not happen to people who are chronically addicted to alcohol, such as we are. And yet a miracle, a common miracle takes place when we decide to put our faith and our trust into a God that we can't see, that we always thought was reserved for other people, and yet somehow, some way, we come into these rooms and we find a group of people who not only understand what I've gone through, but they applaud when they find out I burnt my life to the ground countless times. I mean, where, where are you going to do that, right? No other place I've ever been will do that. Um, Funny story, and this is real quick. Um, an alcoholic goes into a bar, and he reads a sign that says, all you can drink $10, and he tells the bartender, I'll take two. <laughs> and, and that's how we drink. You know, everything in my life, even today, I, I tell people my middle name is Moore. Everything I've ever done, I've done alcoholically. Just today, with this, this obsessive and compulsive disorder that I have, the things that I do today are much different than the things I did 
prior to my alcoholism, my my uh, venture into drinking and using. And I was talking to a friend before the meeting about high school and education. And when it comes to burning our life to the ground, this was this will tell you everything you need to know about me and my self-destructive behavior. When I turned 18 years old, January 3rd of 1972, I was a senior in high school. Now, January, right? I could have not shown up and I would have graduated in May. And yet, I found it necessary to go into the registrar's office, proclaim that I was dropping out of high school. They said, no, you can't. I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old, right? I'll show you I'll kill me. And I went on this destructive path because I had to begin removing everything in my life that prevent me from having sufficient amounts of alcohol so I could recapture that feeling of being an almost. And that is the way I lived until I was 32 years old, till I was introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous on February 9th of 1986. However, not willing to admit that I was powerless over alcohol, I was willing to admit I was powerless over everything else. So my first introduction to 12-step was Gamblers Anonymous. I got clean and sober in Las Vegas, and, and I thought, you know what, I have a problem, but of course it's not alcohol, it's gambling, right? So I thought, well, if I could just go and curb this whole gambling thing, maybe my life would get back in order, because you can only lose so many paychecks, right? And, and, and people start kicking you out, they start turning your water off, all the things that come along with it. You can't afford milk for your wife or kids anymore. Uh, you can't put gas in your car. So I needed to do something to keep my paychecks in my pocket rather than in the casino. So I started going to Gamblers Anonymous, and I want you to know that Gamblers Anonymous does not work. I want you to also know that I did not work the program of Gamblers Anonymous, but that was incidental. Gamblers Anonymous, according to me, didn't work. What I, what I did was, though, I started drinking more at home than I was in the casinos, where I could get those fabulous free drinks, right, that it would only cost me $1,000. And so I started drinking at home, and, and, and that started my spiral even more. And, and I will tell you that getting and moving to Las Vegas was one of the greatest things I ever did. Because I don't know if I would be here today if it wasn't for Las Vegas, which is probably the relapse and burn your life to the ground capital of the world. When I moved from California to Las Vegas, it accelerated my timeline of drinking that turned a fender bender into a full head-on collision. Because my spiral with 24-hour availability of alcohol walking the streets back in those days um, in just a bar everywhere. It's kind of like a church in Alabama, right? Every corner you go to, there's a church. Every Everywhere you go in Las Vegas, there, there's a bar serving liquor 24 hours a day. They even had this thing called package liquor. You could take some home in a small little bottle if you hadn't had enough or you need more when you get to your next destination. And so I crashed and burned in Las Vegas and it only took six years. That's how m deep my denial was. The big book says that we had to admit to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And I wasn't ready to do that. I was ready to let everyone else know all the mistakes that they were making with respect to my life. Everyone else knew how bad I was off with alcohol and drugs and the other behavioral challenge that I had gained by now. But Father Martin says that the first rule of an alcoholic is to protect the supply. At any cost, we protect that supply because when we become chronic, as so many of us do, drinking is like breath. I would never suggest anyone in this room to stop breathing because you know the result is you can only stop breathing for so long if you stop breathing. You know, that's why anesthesiologists study that and, and really that's all they do because there's this thing called Vita, which is life, and if you stop breathing, you die. And if I stopped drinking, I would die as well. Because by this time, uh, so many of us, we, when we get to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
we no longer choose to drink. In Japan, they have a phrase that says, first a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. And by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, many years before that, the drink had taken me. I was no longer evolved in the equation of whether or not I drank. Whether or not I was going to drink was an automatic. In my mind, though, I thought I could control, right? The big book says the great obsession of every alcoholic is, is to drink like a normal person, therefore non-alcoholic, right? And so I would try to control my drinking, but I could not. Right? That's why it says in the big book, at all the earnestness of our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And for those of you who are new or relatively new to the program and recovery, we don't beg you because we need you to get sober. I know that sounds harsh and cruel, but I don't need your sobriety for my sobriety. I just need to carry the message. Whatever you do with the message, that's up to you. My responsibility in step 12 is to carry the message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. But we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start because we know what's going to happen. You know, I said I was married 34 years. She's my third marriage. You know, I have daughters that I'm fortunate never have seen me drunk. A son who's never seen me drunk. But I have two older children who've had a hard time forgiving me because I moved them, literally moved them out of the way so I could leave and go to a bar and walk out of their life. And this is, this is what we do. When I grew up, um, my dad was alcoholic, as so many of our stories are. My mom was a major codependent and I was the middle child of, of seven children and we didn't have any money. When you grow up that way and you have this inferiority complex, it doesn't set the stage for happy adulthood. And I remember working my steps and talking to my sponsor, trying to understand where this feeling of inadequacy came from. And I remember my dad used to come into my room at night and say things like, God bless you, and God is your life. So there was an understanding of God being this power in my life, but I couldn't understand if God was who my dad said God was, how come it hurt so much being me? And I'm five. And I, I can't process it. I can't understand it. All I know is everything I decided to be I had to do. And so I became this chameleon and I tried to be who you needed me to be. And the more people that are in your life, the more difficult that is because life is like Mr. Toad's wild ride. You have to be this way to your mom, you have to be this way to your dad, you have to be this way to your siblings, you have to be this way to your teacher, you have to be this way to so many people and you lose sight of who you are. And it goes on and on and on and on. And Father Martin, I'll quote him again, he says, it's a natural human response to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. He says when, you, when it's raining, you use an umbrella. When it's cold, you put on a jacket. When, when you have a headache, you take an aspirin. But what do you do when what you're uncomfortable with is you? What do you do? Well, you learn how to mitigate that because the option is to kill yourself. And as it's said so many times in these rooms, it's not that we wanted to die, it's just that we didn't know how to live. And so we go through this adolescence and this young adulthood and into adulthood um, trying to navigate that. And we know that alcohol and drugs and other behavior get in the way, but we don't know how to have equal footing without it. And it's not surprising that people I've met along the way, usually 14 to 17 years old, you begin to discover alcohol as that medication, is that what we think at the time is the easier, softer way, right? Because it, it puts the sleep 
that which makes us feel uncomfortable. And if what we're uncomfortable with is who we are, we need to put that to sleep more and more and more and more. And then there's this thing, if that wasn't bad enough, the psychological, emotional side, there's this physiological thing, it's called tolerance. You know, tolerance says I need more today than I did yesterday to achieve the same feeling. And so little by little by little, our addiction creeps up on us. And we go from a periodic drink, to a regular drink, to a daily drink, from scotch to brandy. We're, we're trying to find that magic formula in the magic amount that makes our feel good, feel good. And we, we try different relationships, we go on to different jobs. I went from dropping out of high school to the Air Force, which I dropped out of, to getting married, which I dropped out of. You know, I didn't, I didn't know they were geographics till I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But my whole life was a geographic. Because eventually you were gonna find me out. And I either had to leave you before you figured me out, or you were gonna ask me to leave once you did find me out. There was no middle of the road. I was who I was, I did what I did, and the best I could do in life was to negotiate the amount of pain that I felt as I journeyed through life. And we go through jobs, relationships. I, I can't tell you how many relationships I had. The, the, num the number is insurmountable. I can't even tell you how many jobs I've had that I was fired from or that I quit. Because, you know, in, in the beginning you, you, you think you, you want to learn and then eventually you know more than the person who started the company, right? Uh, Winston Churchill said that uh, 1952, I think he said that uh, every, everyone wants to learn but no one wants to be taught. You couldn't tell me anything because I needed to be in control. And I couldn't admit that I was alcoholic because that would, once you admit something, then you have the expectation of doing something about it. That's why in the big book, again, it says we had to admit to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And finally, I get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember waking up on February 9th of 1986 after I realized that Gamblers Anonymous didn't work and my drinking had progressed. I had lost a job again at the Las Vegas Hilton where I was a room service waiter. I lost $1,000 the previous night at Davies Locker but I got free drinks, right? And, and, and here I am, my mom and dad are gone. I crashed at their place because I didn't have another place to live. And I stood in front of the mirror. And you know, when you have these voices of disappointment, they go off in your head because when you wake up, you're reasonably sober and you have this thing called remorse. I hated remorse. That's why I started doing methamphetamine because I figured it made perfect sense at the time if I could cut my remorse down to once or twice a week rather than five or six times a week, then that would, again, it made sense at the time. Um, and so here I am standing in front of the mirror and usually I hear these voices that say, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Everyone was amazed that I would burn my life to the ground over and over and over again. And this particular morning, as I looked in the mirror, there were no voices. And when all you want to do is live, and you see yourself as dead, it's very frightening. And I saw myself as dead. I just turned 32 years old in January. And I was dead, and I knew it, and I couldn't do anything about it because I knew that I couldn't stop drinking. I knew how serious it was. I knew that I was a problem of my own making. And that particular morning, I, no one was there, and I looked in the yellow pages under all things of alcoholism. And it was the first time I had ever admitted that maybe I do have a problem with alcohol. And, and it was difficult for me because growing up in L.A., especially downtown L.A., and my dad worked downtown on 7th and Alameda. I grew up 
right at Bunker Hill, so like downtown LA, you know what winos are, you know what homeless people are, you know Skid Row winos, uh, some by name, and, and they drink bad wine, they push a shopping cart and they don't have a place to live. Well, I didn't quite qualify for all those things yet, yet is an important word, and, and so admitting I was alcoholic was, was a big leap for a person who's lived in denial. But that particular morning, I looked under alcoholism and I started calling treatment centers. I didn't have a job, I didn't have health care. And one by one by one, when they found that out, they would hang up as quickly as they possibly could. And I finally came across this treatment center, Nevada Treatment Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas. And they said, if you can get here in 60 minutes with $50, we'll speak to you. I didn't have $50 and I'd sold my car the previous week so I had no money, had no transportation. But I called my dad. My dad was sober seven years at this time. And I called my dad. I said, Dad, if I can get to Nevada Treatment Center in an hour with $50, they'll talk to me. And my dad got over there quicker than I'd ever seen him move in my life. And that was the beginning of my journey. That was my first introduction to 12-step to recovery. So I go into this room, the turning point in Las Vegas, and I meet people just like you, and in a club with pinball machines, uh, pool table, people playing pinochle, cribbage, everything right up my alley, a great little coffee bar. And I'm looking at these individuals, and, I'm, and I'm, I couldn't connect that they didn't drink. I just knew I was there for an AA meeting, which was in the back. <laughs> And I went in there, and I'm listening to all these people share these stories, and I'm thinking, you won't like me when you find out who I am, what I've done. I, was, I, I did some bad things. I wasn't, I wasn't a bad person. You know, I was, I was sick. I needed to get well. I wasn't bad trying to get good. I couldn't differentiate the two, though, because I was convinced that if you knew everything about me, I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. And I knew you would say, keep coming back, it works. And I knew if I raised my hand as a newcomer under 30 days, you would applaud and say, we're love you, we're glad you're here. Yeah, you say that, but you don't know the adulterer I was. You don't know how I would steal and rob and deal drugs and all the things that I did. And that was a real block for me. You know, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are, are the steps to the triangle that we need to live in order to achieve this thing called recovery. And I could be open-minded, and I could be willing, but honesty, I was afraid of. I could be honest with a few drinks, but I couldn't be honest sober. Because a few drinks, I was already medicated, and I was an almost. Sober, the realization of being a nothing was apparent, was real. And it was bad enough that I knew I was nothing, but if you knew I was nothing. Because AA, it was the last house on the block. No one wanted me. My second marriage was dissolving. I was unhirable. My mom and dad would have nothing to do with me. My brothers and sisters would hang up if they knew it was me. And I had no place to go. And I tried to do the program half measured. I tried to treat AA like a buffet, Chuckarama, Sizzler, what have you, where I could go in and I could say, I want some of that, but I don't want some of that. I like step two, because it's obvious I'm insane, but I'm not really powerless over alcohol, and the unmanageability, we're still negotiating what that looks like. And I can partially turn my will and my life over to the care of God, but not completely, because I need to be in charge when I need to be in charge. You know how we negotiate the steps? 
And, you know, that worked for a minute. But this whole honesty thing crept up on me and crept up on me. And by whatever willpower I had left and the fellowship of the program, I was able to stay sober 71 days, which is a miracle on itself. And on April 19th of 1986, I went back out. And I went to my dad. And I said, Dad, can you help me? And my dad looked at me and he said, your mom and I aren't going to want you die. And that didn't impact me a lot at the time. My dad took me to a motel called the Red Butler Motel over on uh, 15th and Fremont on Fremont Street in Las Vegas. And he paid a week for me and he turned around and he walked away. And I could see my dad's shoulders just quivering. My dad was a big guy. He bigger than me. And I could see his shoulders just quivering because he was crying. He really believed that he was never going to see his son alive again. And I sat in that hotel room and I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost. But I kept hearing you. I kept hearing you say, keep coming back. I keep, kept hearing you say, God could and would if he were sought. I, I learned a lot of things because I was unemployable. All I could do was go to AA meetings I, and, and the club was 24 hours a day. It was Las Vegas. So I went to the, I opened a meeting at 6 o'clock and, and I, went, I went to the midnight messengers at midnight and all the meetings in between, late lunch bunch, you name it. So I had a, a head full of AA and I was trying to get a belly full of booze to negotiate that. And I even went over to the Sundowner Saloon. And, and, and this is one of the things that turned me. I was ordering a scotch and beer. And I, to this day, I think the only good reason for beer is to chase, chase down scotch. And I ordered these drinks. And there was a shift change. And a sober bartender from Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't the one I ordered the drink from, but he was the one who was serving me my drink. And I went, it was like I had a hook right there, right? And I'm so embarrassed that this guy, who I knew was sober, was handing me a drink. And I started to apologize, and he put up his hand, he said, if you're lucky, there will be tomorrow. And I went back to my hotel room, and I tried to become an almost. When you told me, I could get well. And here I was, trying to recapture being an almost, and you told me I could recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I, and I woke up the next morning, and I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was April 25th of 1986. And the miracle continues because I, I tried to go and sneak into the Alana Club, similar to a meeting place like this, slip in the back, the back door and after the late lunch bunch was was over it was a 12:30 meeting so I went in there about 2 2 2:15 and my sponsor at the time Max Max B never went to this meeting and if he did he wouldn't stay so here he was waiting for me and he didn't even know I was going to show up and I didn't know he was going to be there so I walk into this room he doesn't judge me. He doesn't say, where are you been? Because it's pretty obvious. He just says, are you ready? And I said, Max, I can't tell you how much I need this. And he said, Bobby, this city is filled with people who need this. But if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. I said, what do I do? He said, I want you to get on your knees and we did the third step prayer on April 25th, 1986. And it was the beginning of me understanding that I no longer had to settle for being a nothing. Even though I came from nothing, I wasn't a nothing and I certainly wasn't always going to be a nothing. And it was a struggle for me because I had to trust you to be people of your word. I had to trust you to love me 
as it says, until I could learn to love myself. But that wasn't exactly true because you loved me even after I learned how to love myself. But it's a great cliche. And I started going on this journey. And there was a particular point where Max, Max moved out of town and I had my sponsor of 33 years, um, Jack Fisher. He passed away of cancer. Um, and he was very involved in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous as, as a club manager and then became intergroup uh, manager later on in life. And, and uh, there wasn't anything about AA he didn't know. And it was perfect for me because I remember and I was telling Will and Tess this uh, over coffee tonight. You know, when, when you face with your own destructive nature and you know you could relapse again if you don't move more toward off the center line into a position of of recovery beyond you know it's it's kind of like um, doubling up on vitamins or chemotherapy or any other type of treatment against the malady that can be arrested right never cured but are certainly arrested and I knew I was at that jumping off place because I knew that mediocrity was only going to take me so far and I went to Jack and I said Jack if I go out I'll die you have to tell me there's one thing that I can do to ensure that I never have to experience that again. And he said, that's simple, service. He said, I've never known anyone actively involved in service who has relapsed. And you know, I looked around to the people who were significant in my life. Every single one of them were involved in some level of service. And to this day, 37 years later, matter of fact, it's 13,616 days, which is even crazier. Um, I've never known anyone who's actively, and that's the key word, actively involved in service that has relapsed. I've seen people fall off of service. I've seen people stop doing their steps or stop talking to their sponsor. By the way, not only do I have a sponsor, but he knows he's my sponsor, right? He's, he's got 43 years of sobriety. He lives in Missouri. Uh, when my sponsor, Jack, died, uh, the last time I saw Jack in, in uh, January of, of 2019, I knew he was dying, and it was going to be the last time I saw him. And I went down to my car, and I just cried like a five-year-old and realizing he was dead. And I got right on the phone to Will, who's known me since day. He's actually known me longer than Jack from Las Vegas. And I said, Jack's going to die would you please be my sponsor? And of course he said yes, and, and we've had a, a relationship. So, so everything I tell you in terms of working the steps, getting a sponsor, going to meetings, working with another alcoholic, I still do these things every, every opportunity I can. And I don't know if I would stay sober if I didn't, but I know I don't want to find out, right? When, when, when you're happy, joyous, and free, why not continue to do the things? You know, I call myself, my, my sponsor Will says he's a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic, which really pissed me off when the first time I heard that. I, I went to him after the meeting, I said, first time I heard him say that, I said, how can you say that, you arrogant SOB? And he said, well, stick around after the meeting, Get your big book and I'll show you in the first 164 pages how I can be a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And sure enough, he did. He, line by line, he, he showed me how that could be true. And, and for me to stay recovered, I need to stay in a position of recovery. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, continuing to exercise. Whatever you did to get to where you are, if you continue to do what you're doing, you get to stay where you're at. It's like, it's like um, Sir Isaac Newton in his three basic laws of motion. The first law is things that are at rest tend to stay at rest. Things that are in motion tend to stay in motion, right? So if we continue to do these things, to clean house, to trust God, to work with others, why can't we keep what we have, right? 
and, and it's throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm just kind of like this messenger. If you have a challenge or a problem with anything that I'm saying, please see me after the meeting. We'll sit down, we'll go through the first 164 pages, and I'll tell you where it's consistent with the program of AA. And, and you know the thing is, we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I know this is an all-fellowship meeting, so I'll be a little bit more open with, with my background. Um, alcoholic, drug addict, compulsive overeater, because I became bulimic at the same time. I was gambler, uh, compulsive gambler, and I was addicted to pornography. Every time I tried to address those other things, one of the other things got larger. It was only until I addressed my alcoholism that the other things began to fall off. Really interesting is because AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, the plan of recovery, is, is what is called a design for living, right? And, and, if, and if I am able to arrest this alcoholism, by the way, alcohol is not the problem. I know far too many people who drink who can actually show up where they're supposed to show up when they're supposed to show up tomorrow, but not me. There's a manifestation of an allergy that occurs in me that doesn't occur in other people. That's why I can never safely consume alcohol in any amount whatsoever, right? Because once I do, you know, one is never enough, even though it starts out at one. It was interesting, I was at a meeting last night and the person said, well, if I go to a bar and I have two drinks, you know, he was already jumping and he hadn't even drunk yet. He was already, he already knew he was, he was on his way. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is designed, and this is according to the big book, because we can't do anything apart from a higher power, a power greater than ourselves. You know, and we're sort of introduced to that when we get to step two. Can you believe that a power greater than ourself could restore us to sanity? Well, the insanity didn't have anything to do with my alcohol. It didn't have to do with my drinking, but it had everything to do with my alcoholism. Because I didn't understand how insane I was until I stopped drinking. Because I could manage my insanity just by finding the right amount of alcohol or a combination of drugs or another behavior that would distract me from the real problem, which was me, not knowing how to live. So turning that over in step three, I'm a big step guy. And again, I make no apologies for anything that I say because this is how I've lived for 13,616 days. And you can argue with a lot, but you can't argue with 13,616 days. Nor can you argue with my sponsors 43 years or, or Buddy or Eddie or Jack or Texas Mike or Doc Irv or Abe the Plumber or Pete the Greek. Everybody had a nickname in Las Vegas, right? You can't argue with their sobriety and I couldn't argue with theirs either. You know, even Scott Shields who, I just messaged him the other day and he was instrumental in my recovery. He had 39 years on January 26th. And, and we were chatting about what it's going to be like when he gets to take his 40-year chip. Or Steve Matthews, who will have 38 years in September. I mean, I come from, like, sober royalty. I was talking to my wife, uh, Laura, the other day, and just talking about individuals who have impacted my life. Of the 11 significant people in my life, nine of them have either passed away sober or living in sobriety. Only two of them died in their addiction. Now that's not bad odds. You know, if you go to a doctor and you have, like when I had melanoma cancer, my doctor said, if we dig deep enough, I'm sure we can get this. And sure enough, he did. And every year I go for a checkup, like, like I do a 10-step, right, as a semi-annual, annual house cleaning. House cleaning. Every significant person I know in recovery is sober to this day. Every person I sponsor goes to meetings. My sponsor, Will, will be at a meeting tonight. We were talking to him. He said, Bobby, I still go to a meeting every day. My wife doesn't understand it, but she's not alcoholic. But I go because I need an avenue for my experience, strength, and hope. And in the beginning, I wasn't sure how alcoholic I was but I know how much I needed your fellowship. Preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women 
who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. If that's the only thing you told me, I would have stayed. Because before I was willing to admit that I was alcoholic, I, I would tell you how lonely I was. I don't think anyone understands to the degree and the depth of loneliness we feel. I remember going to a concert at the LA uh, Coliseum, Jethro Tull, Rory Gallagher, and Robin Trower. Big concert back in those days. And I remember there being 100,000 people there. And I remember this to this day. I was, you know, knee deep in my addiction. But I remembered being so high, but looking at the crowd, everyone was surrounding me. It was, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And yet I thought, if so many people are here, how come I feel alone? Remember that? Remember that feeling? You would be with family. You would be in an event that you always wanted to be. And somewhere in that event, somewhere in that time, you were reminded of how lonely you were. My, my first sponsor, Max, would talk to me about a love disorder, which was a really interesting concept. You know, it doesn't take away my alcoholism, my phenomenon of craving, the manifestation of an allergy that occurs in me, not in the average tempered drinker. But there's a lot to be said about not knowing how to give what you've never learned how to receive. Because I always thought there was something wrong. The only time I ever felt accepted, now I feel accepted everywhere I go. I mean, if you don't accept me, it's, it's an outside issue. It's not an internal thing. But in the beginning, when I needed that, that confirmation, when I needed that endorsement, when I needed that attaboy, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous were the only places I could, when I came back and I began to tell you, people would say, well, you did that. Let me tell you what I did. And I'm thinking, but you're sicker than I thought, right? <laughs> but that's how we are. We share on a level that transcends even things that we would ever understand. You know, I don't understand my higher power. I just know I never want my higher power to stop doing what he does for me. Because, again, we are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Where else are you going to go? It says that newcomers are amazed, I'm paraphrasing here, when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic situation. Then it says, why shouldn't we laugh? For we have recovered. And where are you going to go and find that? You know, a newcomer comes in 30, 60, 90 days, six months, what have you. And they hear us tell a story and then they hear us laugh. Like, I don't remember how long I was married to my second wife. I have no idea. Could have been two years, could have been five years. I know I was married to my third wife, and she called me and said, I can't find the divorce papers. Did you ever file them? And I was married to Laura, like, we were on our second child already. And I had to say, I, I don't know. I think we did, right? I hope we did. But I remember my address, 1425 North Mallard in North Las Vegas, right off of Jones Boulevard and Vegas Drive. I could take you to that house right now, but I don't know how long I was married. Right, and, and so we 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 remember what we wanted. I had to remember how to get home because that was that was home while it was. But that's how our, our mind works, and we and we share these things, and they're funny. They really are funny. Um, it's it's even more humorous that we survived, you know, because the reality and the tragedy is of that of this addiction is that we are but a symbol of the people who will die from this arrestable disease. And if that doesn't fill you with a sense of gratitude, I can't help you. You know, we're given a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Where, where, where are you going to find that? I mean, take your own inventory. 
and I hope you take mine. Just don't use it against me. But look at, look at our life, where we were at, the things we did, the people we had harmed, without injustifying it the whole way. And look at our life today. I, I tell people I'm overpaid in every area of life. And they look at me and they say, I, I wish I was. And I look back at them and I said, I, I wish you knew how overpaid you are. And that's especially in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I tell people when I go into prisons and institutions and sharing my message, and, and there's a fictitious family, they're called the Jones Family of Five. The Jones Family of Five. I, I don't know why they're the Jones Family and I don't know why there's five. But I never went through an intersection and killed them. And I was high. I remember dropping purple microdot, drinking cores, smoking Thai bud cured in honey oil and laced with hash. And then I drive down Arrow Highway in Azusa Avenue in Cabina and Azusa area. And I, and I go into prisons and I talk to men who did just a sample of what I did and they're doing 20 years. And every time I walk out of that prison and I hear the gates clang behind me a sense of gratitude comes over me because I know who I was. I know what I did. And for whatever reason, God set me aside long enough so I would find the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, get sober, and the only thing I have to do is share my message and practice the principles in all my affairs. That's, that's, what I, that's all I have to do. I have to take the steps. I have to walk through the steps. The steps are the most vital thing because the steps are transformational. We talk about step three and we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. And then we have to take this moral and fearless inventory. The big book says that this um, spiritual life is, a, is not a theory. We have to live it. And it will tell you in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that the reason for the big book is to show you how to find a power greater than yourself. And the cool thing is that power can be anything you want. However, it's not a coffee cup and it's not a doorknob because you got one of those at home. It needs to be something, someone that you can't find anywhere else but within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or nature at large. Do you know, and I'll close with the reading, do you understand the significance of a camel? Do you know, in Las Vegas there's a place called the Camel Club, it's pretty cool. I love how we can take nature and creation and understand our recovery. You know, because there's a Zen proverb that says, before enlightenment, we carry water and we chop wood. After enlightenment, we carry wood. We, we carry water and we chop wood. I tell you that because I want you to know that I'm not doing anything different today that I did 13,616 days ago. The same thing. I'm just doing it with a different understanding. So the significance of a camel is that a camel starts their day on its knees. Look this up. A camel ends its day on its knees and it can go 24 hours without a drink. Isn't that, isn't that you and me? <laughs> we pray in the morning. We ask God to direct us in what He would have us do. We don't drink in that 24-hour window because again, what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And at the end of the day, we thank God for one more day of letting us go from a nothing to a somebody. And I'll close with this, my favorite page in the big book. I wish I could talk longer. That's my ego talking. <laughs> Chapter 2, There is a Solution. 
this is my favorite page, page 17, says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know of thousands of men and women who are just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. There's that word. They have solved the drink problem. I love that too. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment at the rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. But unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy and escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one powerful element in the cement which now binds us, but that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert, and I'm alcohol. Thank you. Thank you.